From the studios of the Optimism Institute, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Burke, and in every Blue Sky episode, we'll be speaking to leaders, researchers, and thinkers whose stories and insights will remind us that there is always blue sky above. Sometimes you just have to get your head above the clouds to see it. My guest today is David Gardner, co-founder of The Motley Fool. David Gardner is chief rule breaker at The Motley Fool, a financial services company he co-founded in 1993 alongside his brother, Tom. The Motley Fool's purpose is to make the world smarter, happier, and richer. To that end, David has picked stocks for a worldwide membership for 27 years and hosted his own weekly podcast, Rule Breaker Investing, since 2015. In October of 2018, David made his 200th consecutive monthly stock pick for the company's flagship service, Motley Fool Stock Advisor. Those 200 picks returned an average annualized return of 20.7% over those 16 plus years versus the market's S&P 500 average of 7.5%. David served on the Individual Investor Advisory Committee of the New York Stock Exchange for 15 years and the Folger Shakespeare Library Board for 10 years. He currently serves on the board of directors of the Conscious Capitalism Institute and is a graduate of the Leadership Greater Washington Signature Program, Class of 2019. Today's episode is a little bit longer than most you'll find on the Blue Sky podcast, but our conversation wound up covering a lot of ground. You'll hear David's thoughts on everything from optimism's relationship to entrepreneurship and investing, the positive power of capitalism, the role that gratitude plays in his life, and the virtues of lifelong learning. Throw in an unusual story about a certain ex-president and a diversion into David's outsized love for, of all things, board games, and you have a running time of just over an hour. But hopefully you'll enjoy this conversation with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner just as much as I did. David Gardner, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. Thank you, Bill. It is a delight and an honor. I know the august crowd that has already started forming around this podcast, the guests you're going to be having I'm sorry that you're having to suffer a fool gladly this particular time. Very gladly. And as I was doing my intense research for today, I tried to figure out when it was that you and I first met. And I went right to it because it was the height of the dot-com mania, the summer of 1999. I was in Old Town, Alexandria. It was about 98 degrees and humid. And you and your brother came in with little cups of Ben and Jerry's. And my first impression was this is the most upbeat and optimistic headquarters I've ever been in my life, and I've never forgotten it. So I've always been struck by that. And 24 years later, as far as I can tell, nothing's changed. So, Well, thank you, Bill. It was a delight to meet you back then in the context of executive leadership we were searching for. Uh, We couldn't afford you, but I'm delighted (laughs) that you have gone on to the career that you have enjoyed. And truly, it it was a delight to make friends, um, yeah, 24 years ago. Yeah. So it made me think about a, a question I'd love to kick off with, which is, I believe there's a there's a direct connection between entrepreneurship and optimism, that the two almost by definition have to go hand in hand, right? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that because people know you in many ways as a stock advisor, stock picker, but you're an entrepreneur. You built an incredible business. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and the keys of, of entrepreneurship and optimism going together. Well, first of all, I agree with you. So I think that you've hit on something that's very, very important. 
my own watchword attributed to Henry Ford, whether Henry Ford ever said this or not. I know you already know this because people who love optimism know a line like this one, but whether you think you can or whether you think you cannot, you're right. And so for me, that is a reminder to all of us that optimism, number one, is, is not just a state of mind or an emotion. It's a creative force. And so to me, every entrepreneurial enterprise for profit and not for profit was started presumably by somebody who thought, what if we did this? What if we actually tried this? Or I think I can do it better than how it's being done. And that almost by definition, Bill, I think requires you to believe in what you're saying or doing. And you know, a lot of us have ideas, things occur to us. What if we did this? But to actually go on to raise capital, to hire people, to have the responsibility of delivering a product or service that people will actually pay you above your costs for if you're trying to go for profit, that's an entirely different thing than just a passing thought that you keep having that you should start or do this thing. So I do think that, that the power of optimism to truly drive persistence and creativity is it has to be present for anything that's trying to scale. And you've also talked about optimism in the world of actually investing. And uh, when I think one of your famous lines, at least it's one that I've always admired, is make your portfolio reflect your best vision of your future. Can you explain that to our listeners? Yeah. So I think, first of all, uh, the money that we invest should be directly aligned with who we are and what we do. You're going to do much better as an investor, by the way, if you follow your own instincts about where the world's headed and what's going what's gonna to thrive. And I think it's very important for me to say, say, especially the style of investing I practice, which I call rule breaker investing, that you need to be willing to lose. Like a venture capitalist, you absolutely are going to get it wrong. I would say time and time again. In fact, in the same way that NBA players still miss free throws, you're never not going to fail and keep failing. That's always going to be going to be part of it. But I, I think, especially as an investor, I think you're going to do so much better if your money is authentically expressing who and what you are in the world. There should be a one-to-one consonance between those things in the same way that the books we read shape us. The investments we select should be reflections of who we are. And at least it's been my lived experience that 30 plus years in for picking stocks for others and investing in the same things myself, because that's what we generally do at The Fool. What you hear is what we're doing. Um, It works. I've seen it work and I've seen it beat the market, in many cases quite dramatically, uh, when you're thinking backward from the future and saying, what's the world I want to live in and what are the companies that are going to shape that future? So yeah, make your portfolio reflect your best vision. And, and I would actually say for our future. So I think we should be thinking past just Bill Burke's future or David Gardner's future. I think we should be thinking about what's really going to work for the world. That has you maybe picking slightly different companies if you're a stock picker than just your own hobbies. But again, I don't think you can go wrong. And of course, Peter Lynch one generation earlier, uh, wrote a few best-selling books counseling us that it's actually easier to be this kind of mom-and-pop armchair investor than what he was doing as a professional stock picker and a mutual fund manager. Um, And I, I would just say, follow your nose. David said a few things here that I really like. One is optimism is a creative force. This is something we really believe at the Optimism Institute, and you'll keep hearing this theme as we move forward. A second is you are never not going to fail. 
This is so important. You'll hear shortly that David loves quotations, and one I'll add here applies. And it's from Winston Churchill, who said, success consists of going from failure to failure without a loss of enthusiasm. I'd suggest the same applies to optimism. The optimist knows that he or she will face setbacks and failures, but that's all part of the journey. Now back to our conversation. So to align your investing with your own values or vision for the future, I imagine, and I'd love to hear, as you look at stocks, you may get all the way down a path with a certain company and say, boy, these ratios are just right. Boy, they've got tailwinds. They've got this, that. But there's something about this leadership or there's something about the business model that just makes me a little uncomfortable ethically or the product is a concern. Does that, does that happen in the course of your assessing stocks? Well, I think that um, anytime you are kicking through a lot of different ideas, flipping over stones and seeing what's underneath, you're going to occasionally regret that you put in that much time for that stone. It might be that as you flip that stone over, you did decide to buy what was underneath it and you regret having done so, or maybe you didn't buy what was underneath it, but you spent a lot of time obsessing about that stone or fascinated by what might be underneath it. So that can be a diversion. But I prefer to think that everything is an opportunity and a gift. And if you're, you haven't already had any relationship with Shirzad Shamin, the author of the book, Positive Intelligence, I think he would be an outstanding interview. I've learned a lot from Shirzad. And one of the things that he's really big on is this idea that the things that go wrong for us are opportunities and gifts. And really, if you reframe every bad thing that way, um, and it's not easy to do, and some things are truly horrible, and it would take years of therapy to actually be able to say that was an opportunity and a gift. But it's a beautiful way of reframing our experience. And I would say that, yeah, I, I think it's really important not to regret too much. Dan Pink wrote a great book. There's another great interview for you, Bill, um, on the power of regret. And, you know, I have to admit, I was a person before reading that book who said, yeah, I got no regrets. I live a life with no regrets. <laughs> but really, Dan reminds us that what we regret says a lot about who we are and really often changes our future intentions and actions. So regret's good. It's a healthy thing, opportunity and a gift. And I think you often regret, I think of error, errors of omission as opposed to commission. And yeah, and that's one of his big phrases. Did you read that book? Bill? I did. That just, that just came to me, I think. Yeah, you don't need to because that's like <laughs> chapter one. Yeah, no, but it's, it's true though, I think. And, and this is one of the things I'm trying to convey to folks, because I hear it back from a lot of people who, who share this optimistic mindset, is a lot of people who look down on optimists, cynically, I think, say, well, that means you just sit around and the world's just going to get better and you just it's just going to happen. And really, what, what you find is that people who feel a sense of doom and dread are the ones who get apathetic. It's, it's the optimists who want to be active. And if they have regrets, they're errors of commission, not omission. I really believe that. Well, I think it's true. Now, you know, there are, there are all kinds of it's hard to have a one-size-fits-all approach to whether to regret or not. And actually, one of my bigger insights that I've gained over the course of my 56 years, I will now share in brief. And that is that any wise saying has an equally true and often opposite <laughs> yes. wise saying. And this is very important. So let's go to an optimistic frame of mind and say, he who hesitates is lost. And I think we can all look back on our lives and say, you know what? I should have I should have done that. I should have said yes. I hesitated. Right, right. Maybe I was slow or maybe I was reluctant, but man, would things have been better if I had actually done that. Here's the problem. The problem is that look before you leap. <laughs> right. And we can also all look back on our lives and go, you know what? 
I really should have thought twice. I should have had an extra conversation. This avuncular person puts their arm around you and says, you know, Bill, look before you leap. And you're like, you're right. You're so right. But the problem is these opposite epigraphs, these wise sayings contradict each other. And so to me, the profound insight is that you should fill up your toolbox with as many of these as possible. Because if you don't know, look before you leap. If you're just a he who hesitates is lost person, (laughs) then I think you're not a fully integrated individual. So we need to have both and add a lot more tools besides. And the whole key to wisdom is to know when to use which tool. And so to me, we can talk a lot about errors of omission or errors of commission. They're both true. We just need to do our best as we muddle through life to start figuring out which way should I err if I'm going to err. And I appreciate the pronunciation of err. Thank you. That's very controversial. And it's, it's, you take a risk going with err, but err is correct. I am a pedant. I am a pedant. And I'm very open to having people correct my English or pronunciation all the time. I really am. I think it helps all of us when somebody helps me out. So I believe it's err, and I never have the courage to say it myself because everyone (laughs) says err. So God bless you. Well, and you also need to say things like it is I, not it's me. I know. I know. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of these. The Oxford comma, by the way, a hill I'll die on, but we can keep moving. I'm with you on that. And I, my wife, a couple of Christmases ago, I have something in my closet that says, I'm sitting here silently correcting your grammar. So we're on the same page there. <laughs> you have also already revealed, you are one of the more well-read people I know. And I don't know if there's a direct connection between someone with an optimistic attitude and devouring books the way you do or having authors on your show. And But, but I think there might be. I think this sort of lifelong learner uh, concept is something that, you know, gets you up in the morning, gets you excited, makes you see the world differently. Maybe when you're hearing bad news, maybe knowing a way to look around the corner at what the better news is. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, lifelong learner is the only way to approach life, especially in this world where technology is speeding up and forcing us to adapt. Um, all of a sudden, chat GPT. Okay, what does that mean <laughs> yeah. for the world or me or my business or the future? Um, so we need to be constantly ready Uh, Warren Bennis, such a great writer on leadership, said the number one factor that separates great leaders from good ones is adaptive capacity. So it's the story of the human race. I think we all need to be ready to roll with whatever's about to happen. And we've just lived through a few years where that was profoundly clear to the whole world, not just any one continent or subset of people. So for me, yeah, lifelong learner, the only way to go. I really have read far more books out of school than I did in school. And yet you are highly overrating me and I need to stop you from doing that, Bill, because I am an incredibly slow reader. I tend to forget most of what I read. It is painful. I've asked, I've actually asked myself, and you're right, I do have authors on my podcast and I always insist that I've read the book (laughs) if I'm going to have you on my podcast. So that's all true. But man, do I forget so much of what I read. And that's why I'm here to promote really quickly, this is not a business relationship I have, the app Readwise. Have you come across Readwise? I have not. Okay. If you you or your listeners are ebook readers, and I am more of an ebook read on my Kindle or my phone person than paper anymore, then this is a magical app, especially if you highlight text, which I do. And why? Well, I just explained. I forget if I don't. So I highlight key passages and then Readwise, you upload them all into Readwise and then it fires you back a morning newsletter with five highlights from past books. That incredible book you read nine years ago that you'd forgotten, chapter eight, or that perfect quote from a book that you read two years ago that totally helps you 
solve a business problem or improve your day right now. So I am a gigantic fan of Readwise. And the reason I mention that is because that has inspired me now to read more and highlight more because it is um, such a wonderful way to, to be a lifelong learner is constantly have not just new ideas, but the great ideas come back to you. Often I'm a cult of the new person, squirrel. Yeah. Same. And so <laughs> it's very helpful for me to be reminded of the eternal verities and the great passages and books that I've already read that I had three quarters forgotten about. That's amazing. Readwise. I was also, yeah, I go back and forth between electronic and physical books. And I was raised, you know, that books were sacred. You don't highlight in a book, you know, you just, and, and there's something very liberating about being on digital and just hacking it up. And uh, well, Readwise. I agree with that. There's a good book called How to Read a Book that I once read. And it basically says, mark the heck out of your you book. You own the so book. You own I the got book. that at a formative age. I'm yeah. happy. In fact, I, I almost don't want to give my books away because I've made them such an important part of, uh, of me. David and I were having some fun here with grammar, and yes, I'll warn you, I am a bit of a grammar weenie, though no doubt you'll catch me making plenty of errors in my podcast. Speaking of the first three letters of the word error, I took a look at the pronunciation of the word spelled E-R-R. -R. I gave David credit for pronouncing it correctly as er, but I should point out that while David's is the more courageous choice, air is still considered acceptable. But I digress. I also want to talk about a phrase David mentioned that was new to me, adaptive capacity. I think it's important to believe that it is human beings' capacity to adapt that has helped advance progress so consistently over the years. And to the folks at Readwise, this is the first I've heard of your product, but it sounds amazing. And while we don't yet have sponsors of the Blue Sky Podcast, operators will be standing by if you'd like to give us a call. And now let's get back to our conversation with Motley Fool co-founder and chief rule breaker, David Gardner. Let's turn our attention to capitalism. Um, you are a capitalist. You've built a company. You invest in for-profit entities as a living for a living. Um, and I know you're very passionate about capitalism, which as a concept, if you will, has had a rough stretch where I think a lot of folks blame whether it's climate change, um, you know, a lot of the world's ills on capitalism. And uh, it's, it's falling out of favor, especially with younger people. And, and uh, a lot of people question whether or not it's a viable way of uh, running a society. So I'd love to hear your take on capitalism, why you're an advocate, and uh, just please share that with us. Sure. And I'm going to say that I think that some of what you just characterized I'm going to characterize not as inaccurate because you're my friend, Bill Burke, and I admire you deeply, and I'm not Thank going you. to call you on that one thing. But I do want to reframe things a little bit because um, the Edelman Trust Barometer, which comes out every year somewhere around this time, I don't know if they've come out with 2022 yet, but a year or two ago when I last checked it, if you look at the world worldwide, the institutions that we trust uh, in two ways. Do you trust their efficacy and competence? And do you trust them? For the first time in the last couple of years, business, the private sector, has become worldwide the most trusted institution versus government, versus NGOs, um, uh, versus a number of other. Um, actually, those are the big, the big players in our world today. And even better, I think, and this is the conscious capitalist in me talking, and Bill, I'm on the board of conscious capitalism, yes. so this is chapter and verse. But even better, 
when asked, when you survey pe people worldwide, all right, so business is now what you trust. And think about who came up with the vaccines. Business is what you trust to solve problems better than anything else. What about the business you work for? Do you trust that more or less than capital B business? And the answer is 77% of us say, I trust it more. And so what I really believe you're seeing is somewhat of a fourth estate journalistic mischaracterization of what most people actually think. Now, you and I are both from the media world, and we are both putting out headlines that influence others and being influenced by it ourselves. So I know, and I also share concerns about um, young people disbelieving and, but, you know, in business, but then I also hear about people who want to do something good in this world, who actually want to work for something they believe in. And it really is true that when you think about the products and services that we are purchasing and that we surround ourselves with every day that enrich our lives, that means so much to us, that form human connections, uh, et cetera, those are being produced every day by the private sector for the most part, uh, at least most of the best ones in most countries in the world are by entrepreneurs and by capitalism. So I really believe that past the headlines or underneath the hood, you have a mass acceptance and belief that this is the best way for the world to work, which is why we've all committed to it and made such progress the last couple of centuries. There's a little bit of Steven Pinker in me. I know, I'm quite sure you bumped into Steven and probably hung out with him I'm a fan. through your Harvard connections, but I'm, a, I'm definitely a Pinker believer and backer because he goes counter to the, the cultural expectation that things are going down and he looks at data, et cetera. The last thing I'll mention, then I'm going to give you back the ball because I think I've ranted. No, this but, is great. You know, he has a great um, poll in his book, Enlightenment Now, written a few years ago. I assume this is still true today. When you ask people, are they happy in the United States today? Something like 78 or 9% people say, yeah, I'm, I'm happy. Sure. Yeah, I'm happy. And then you ask the same group of people, everybody, what about other people? Are they happy today? <laughs> and amazingly, something like 37% of us would agree that other people are happy. Think about that. Yeah, makes no sense. And it's interesting, I'd never heard the research about uh, how you feel about business and how you feel about your own business. It, it kind of reminds me of people say they hate Congress, but they like their congressmen. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> a, a very great, similar phenomenon. Direct comparison. That's excellent. It's very interesting. Yeah. And, and you hit on something that's throughout the work we're going to be doing at the Optimism Institute, which is this, this um, ability of, of especially mainstream media, but increasingly social media to just latch onto the best possible negative angle. And then we all spin down into that negativity. And so you're, you've always been great about pulling people out of that. So I appreciate it. So you mentioned conscious capitalism and I have uh, attended a conference. I, I'm on their newsletters. I'm, I'm a fan of the movement. Um, I think one of the challenges they've had is they've, people don't totally understand the name or what it's all about. So I know you're passionate about it. You're a board member. Could you enlighten us about what conscious capitalism is all about and why you spend so much time and effort with the organization? Sure. There are four bedrock principles that underlie. They're very simple. So I'll just trot them out right now. The first is purpose over profit, higher purpose. Four, per, four profit companies that actually state a purpose that's authentic, that's recognized as true, actually acted out, not just greenwashing or laminated uh, values, uh, but actually recognized as true by their own employees, by their customers. Think about, I don't know, something like Patagonia a lot, or REI. A lot of it, you talk to the customers about what they think about those companies, those brands, and you know, you see the belief. Um, so 
purpose over profits. Those are companies, entities for profit that state we are serving a higher purpose. And one of the tricks to this is it just so happens that often the share of profit in most industries is dominated by the companies that do this well. Right. So by searching for purpose, you actually often maximize profit. Very important point. The second of the bedrock principles is to create a win for all your stakeholders. So we could talk more about that if you like, but a lot of 20th century business textbooks, people who went to business school, Bill, back uh, in the day, yeah. were often, I'm not going to say you, but we're often taught that the purpose of a corporation is to uh, maximize shareholder value. That's a big uh, phrase. And so um, conscious capitalism thinks that shareholders are one important stakeholder and there are a whole bunch of others. And let's go with really quickly employees. We already talked about them. Customers, I mean, why do we exist? Partners and suppliers who enable and empower what we're doing. Um, maybe the environment, depending on the business. Maybe the local community, depending on the business. You can name your stakeholder as an entrepreneur. That's a creative act. But the whole thing with number two here is to create a win for everybody. If you create a, a structure in which you're like, we're here just to maximize it for that one group, right. the shareholders, we're going to max it out, people. That creates Enron. That creates all kinds of problems in capitalism. So again, a more enlightened, I would say, 21st century view is to create a win-win-win, win for everybody and problem solved that way. The third and fourth principles are simply conscious leadership, which I think a lot of us would recognize as maybe servant leadership uh, or really creative servant leadership. And then conscious culture is the fourth. And that kind of comes down to the culture of the companies we're talking about, the ones we work for, invest in, et cetera. I'm a culture junkie. I feel like as a stock picker, I'm really just picking cultures. And because I tend to buy stocks and not sell, I know that just as Rome was built, not in a day, but the culture of a city or a place or a group of people, a university, these things are built over decades. And they also are hard to destroy unless you intentionally try to do so. And so you're really buying culture when you're a stock market investor, in my opinion, if you do what I do. So culture counts deeply. So those are the four, higher purpose, win for all stakeholders, conscious leadership, conscious culture. And I believe that that, that group of four principles, none of which says, you know, make money right now, max it all out for this or that, they all sound maybe a little bit woo-woo to some people, but really it's a devastating competitive weapon that you can take into any industry or context and probably, if you're doing it right, probably create a lot of value for everybody. Uh, and so that's why I love conscious capitalism. I've, we've tried to build a business ourselves consciously that does that. Uh, I'm not saying we're good at it. We're just trying. And then as an investor, I have most of my best stocks and investments have been companies that really are improving the world as they profit. Well, it, it's a great answer. And I, I, knowing you as long as I have in your company, you were, you were conscious capitalism before it was cool. I mean, before it had a name, you were, you were living this. It's just, I think, how you're, how you're wired. You said something too about culture that, and I, you and I may have had this conversation one time because I know you all do this. Um, used to always frustrate me that when, when people are analyzing companies for investment, they look at ratios, they look at numbers, they look at earnings per share, this, that, the other. They rarely, if ever, talk about morale. 
do people like to work there? Because <laughs> I would hear people rave about certain companies, let's say in the media business, I'd say people hate it there. <laughs> that place is going down. <laughs> and But I feel like now, whether it's, is it Glassdoor, the, there, there's certain ways you can, you can sort of peek into, you know, what the mood is like in a company. And especially, I think, coming out of the pandemic, we've seen a huge shift, sort of a power shift from employers to employees about do I want to work from home? Do I want to come in? Do I? And, and people who say, I want to work for a company that stands for something, that, that creates a product I believe in. It's a huge shift. It is. And in a lot of ways, it's sad that we had to shift to, to that. I mean, if you really, again, I always try to think backwards from the future. In fact, future is one of my favorite words. It's my license plate in here in come Washington, D.C., it's my vanity plate. No one else in Washington, D.C. wanted it. I was like, I'm going to take future then. So if you ever see a Tesla driving around Washington, wow. D.C. with the future license plates, it's me. The word means a lot to me. I try to live backwards from the future and pick stocks accordingly. But isn't it? I mean, I think people will look back and just see the misery of lives led by people who didn't like what they were doing or didn't believe um, in the end product of their work. And I don't mean today. It does happen today. Um, I don't mean 50 years ago. It probably happened more 50 years ago. I don't even mean 150 years ago because it probably happened at real. That's why the world unionized a lot of time in the 19th century industrial age. It's because the mistreatment, early 20th century of, of, of people. But really, the good companies today, and most of these companies are good investments, recognize that it's about human flourishing. And if your employees aren't flourishing, it, beyond just what they're doing for your work, if you're not thinking about their family, like a next level thought about a conscious culture, if you want to name a stakeholder and be creative and shock people in your industry, don't just say, yeah, our stakeholders are uh, shareholders, uh, employees, customers, suppliers. Say the families of my employees are an important stakeholder. That is a beautiful thought. We don't even do that at The Fool, so anybody can do that and you're better than we we are. Although, it's just a way of reframing what we're really doing here. And I think this is much more Ocaron today than it ever was. And I think it's going to be even more so 50 years from now. And so it's sad for me to think that you or I would spend our precious time on this planet doing something that is miserable to us. David has introduced another concept here that I'd not considered before, working backwards from the future. It's an interesting way to think about how you might want to orient your mindset and live your life. And I'll add, if you live in the greater Washington, D.C. area and come upon a Tesla with future as its vanity plate, give David a thumbs up. Of course, as long as he's not cutting you off in traffic or something. Now, getting back to our conversation, I asked David next, how does he see the future and why does he think things will keep getting better? Well, first of all, it's always the right bet that things will be generally better. If you just look at most measures, and you know, again, Steven Pinker is just replete with these things, but before I ever came across Pinker, I read Matt Ridley's wonderful book, The Rational Optimist. And again, Bill, if you've not, you probably have read it, but that if you haven't I've had read. Matt yet, if you haven't had Matt on your short list of invitees, I would invite him onto this podcast because there's a lot of blue sky and always has been in his thinking, but he's really good at looking back through human history and showing consistently through every era most people think things are going down and probably yeah. there's an apocalypse that's going to happen while I'm on this planet. And not only has that not been the case, but really by most measures, infant mortality, longevity, 
poverty reduction. We are, we've made constant upward progress. Look at the stock market, lower left to upper right over any meaning. For anybody who's an investor, that's like my simple quick visual is just look at a graph of the market over any period of 25 years or more, lower left to upper right. That's not smoke and mirrors. That's not short-term crypto. That is real progress. And that's what we should expect, right? We're all working pretty hard to make things better for each other. At least most of us are Vladimir Putin. So I would say that we have a real opportunity to continue to use new technologies that are emerging to create an even better future with longer life, less poverty, more happiness, more trust. And I think that is nearly inevitable. I think it's backed by rational optimism in Matt Ridley's phrase. So I, I'm not going to be great at making specific predictions. I never would have thought that a Tesla electric car would scale and become not just an awesome consumer product, but the envy of its industry. And now all of the copycats are turning the world electric. When Elon Musk came to speak for free at Full HQ in 2011, <laughs> and three weeks later, I was like, that's my next stock pick, Tesla. And I'm not even an Elon fanboy in particular. Right, I was just right. like, this guy is talking about something, and he's already helped build PayPal. And he said Tesla's the third most shorted stock in the NASDAQ, and I love to find haters. This is <laughs> yeah. such a helpful thing for me as an investor. So man, was that... Anyway, so I would just say when I drive around and have driven around Tesla for 10 years now, especially 10 years ago, I felt like I'm driving, I'm in the future. William Gibson, the sci-fi writer, you've probably heard this line yep. too, Bill, you know where I'm headed here. Yeah, the future's already here. It's just not evenly distributed. So there are things happening in laboratories right now and classrooms and places that, we, that would blow our minds that are happening right now as we speak, that would blow our minds. We just don't know it yet. But the more that you, as an early adopter, at least for me, seek out consumer experiences, technologies, possibilities, and, and become interested in them and try them, um, I will say a minority of my friends, and these are people I respect, they're my friends, I love them, I admire yeah. them, a minority have logged in yet with ChatGBT, a minority have started a free account and ha started having a conversation uh, with artificial intelligence. I would say that's a missed opportunity. Eventually, they'll all come just like my friends were also not buying or believing in Amazon early in the day. Right. It was like, just a bookstore, really? So I would just say the future is going to be better than it is now. That's always been the rational bet. Yes, horrible things happen. They're happening right now and they will happen in future. But look at what Kevin Kelly calls the protopia that we live in. Not a utopia. Clearly, we're not living in that. But not a dystopia either. A protopia where things get in tiny infinitesimal ways better every day. They don't make headlines, but if you watch over time the progress made, it is breathtaking. And to close this long rant, and should we end this podcast sometime great soon? Rant. You're, you're like, rolling. I've gone too long, but you know, here we are. Here we are um, on a plane, Zooming to say goodnight to our family, basically for free. And since you and I grew up in the same era, Back in the day, I was paying a dollar a minute for, actually, my mom was, collect call from David, Oh yeah, dollar a minute, not seeing anybody, and extremely, so that is just in half a human lifetime today. We too often take for granted the remarkable protopia that we live in, but I don't, <laughs> and I, I just play it forward, and I invest accordingly, and I'm always 100% in the market. I don't 
jump out thinking, oh, it's about to go down. It does go down. One year and three goes down. Doesn't matter to me. So that little anecdote about pay phones. I, I remember I was talking to my sister during the early days of the pandemic, which was brutal and lives were lost. And it was a terrible, tough thing. But I remember saying, could you imagine if this had happened in 1974 when we're home with three channels, oh and no internet? I mean, truly, how, how would businesses have kept going? How would it's true. It, incredible. It's true. And, and I was fortunate enough during the pandemic, a uh, roundabout set of circumstances was on a, on a phone, a Zoom with John Malone, who was one of the pioneers of the cable business. And I say, you guys are the heroes of the pandemic and no one's talking about it. I thought the internet was going to break. We're all, we're all down. We're all binge watching shows and we're Zooming right and left. I, I thought it wasn't going to hold up. A miracle. And so back to your license plate. Um, not only do a lot of people not focus on the future, uh, Steven Pinker has a word for it, and I'm forgetting it, but we also overglorify the past. It's a strange trait that a lot of us have. It's like back in the old days. And it struck me, I remember after 2016, uh, former President Trump was elected in November. And for a lot of people, that was a tough thing. And towards the end of the year, there were several, I went back and looked to check my memory. There were several editorials that referenced 2016 as the worst year in American history. And I remember even at the time thinking, hmm, 1863 was pretty rough. You know, you could, <laughs> it, you know, it's sort of a, or, you know, 1934 was pretty tough. You know, we just had this thing of looking back that it was always better. And I think that's a big challenge too. I agree. And, you know, I, um, since you introduced uh, former President Trump, I just want to say two quick things about that. First of all, um, I am not a fan of President <laughs> Trump and I am not a political person. This is not a political statement. I specifically, shorted his company, Trump Hotels oh, and Casino Resorts, from the MotleyFoolFool.com platform in really? 1998. And uh, why did I do that? Well, at the time, it was America's least admired company. Uh, this is this is before there were any political- 1998, you said? For the most part, yeah. And, and over the course of a year or so, the market went up um, uh, 40%, and the Trump stock that we had shorted went down 60%. So we had 100 points of alpha- and he invited us to come talk to him. And I would say greatly to his credit. He said, you guys don't like my company. Come on. I'd like to spend an hour with you. So we flew to the 25th story of the Trump Towers and spent one hour and six minutes with Trump. There's a longer story I'm not going to tell here, but if yeah. I, I've told it before. It's there on my podcast. You go to Google, I own the water. <laughs> okay. Bobby full brush with Donald Trump. You can hear the full story. But- in so many words, he said, you guys have it wrong. You're, I know you're short my stock, but here's the thing. You don't know that we're about to refinance that massive debt that you see and we have no cash. You don't know that, but I like you guys. <laughs> so I'm letting you guys know that. And, uh, and I said, fine, I'm going to transparently reflect what you've said right on our site. I'm going to write it up for all of our members. I am in honor of you doing this because I want to credit you, sir. I said, many CEOs would not even take the time to do what you did. Howard Schultz, a pretty enlightened leader of Starbucks, would not open Starbucks's quarterly conference calls to individual investors, including shareholders, part owners of the stock. They locked people out. This was this was standard that. Wall Street stuff back then, but we kind of expected more of Howard until he did reverse his policy, and it was actually in response to Motley Fool-driven uh, thoughts. So anyway, there's Trump actually inviting us in and having a conversation when much of corporate America is like stiff arming this kind of thing. So to his credit, but he also, so I said, I'm going to close the short. We've done great. We 
Your stock's down 60%. We told all our members to short you. The market's up 40. And so let's all watch together, I said, in that article, see what happens from here. And history will show it went straight down to zero over the next few years. And then all of a sudden there's this TV show where he's sitting yeah, in yep. judgment of entrepreneurs, et cetera. So I am not a fan. And I think there are really good reasons not to be. But I also praised him there at least once. And I want to say, back to our topic, I want to say something that I admire about him that I think a lot of people who love him do. And it's his optimism. Yeah. He's kind of a can-do guy. There's a lot of There are a lot of politicians who are just pointing out problems and are just kind of negative and the answer would often be more government. So I think there's something refreshing. And I also appreciate this about Ronald Reagan, somebody I do respect. I think that he also had that winning kind of, you know, things can get better. And I think that's what I want from my leaders. I get it all the time in for-profit businesses, which is why the real leaders that I think that exist today come from the private sector. Very, very few leaders in politics today. They can't be leaders because right. they can't be authentic. And as Warren Bennis wrote, his wonderful book on leadership, on becoming a leader, he said, you can't be a leader if you're not authentic. And politicians have to say stuff and do stuff that's just ridiculous. And so, of course, I'm not looking to most politicians to be leaders. I certainly wasn't to the previous president or this president. Yep. Where are my leaders? Yeah, I'm invested in them. I know <laughs> them. I, I'm talking to one right yep. now. These are the people that are causing our, our world to propel forward. I don't envy the job of being in the public sector today. I certainly, as a Washington, D.C. native, have a lot of friends who are there. Some of them are wonderful people. But if you really want to talk about how to make real change in this world, a real positive change, look what technology has given us. Uh, you spoke to the benefits of being in a pandemic now versus 1974 or 1918, when many more people died uh, with a much lower world population. And uh, yeah, and these reasons are often because of human progress. We need to acknowledge it and actually invest in it. When you talk to David Gardner, you never know where the stories will take you. And I had no idea we'd wind up in Trump Tower, but there you have it. But there's some key points I'd like to underscore here. David says that, quote, human progress is an inexorable force, unquote. Let that sink in. And I highly recommend Steven Pinker's work, particularly his TED talk entitled, Is the World Getting Better or Worse? A Look at the Numbers. Spoiler alert, he makes the case that the unavoidable data-driven conclusion is that it's absolutely getting better. David and I also talked a bit about technology here. And while technology can at times be a scary thing, there's a lot to be optimistic about. And it's helpful to stop on occasion and think about so many of the great things that technology has done for us and how it will continue to improve our world. Which is a good segue to my next topic with The Motley Fool's David Gardner, gratitude. One thing, uh, David, you've talked about, uh, I know recently, and I imagine it's been part of your much of your life, is the concept of gratitude. And um, I think there is a line between gratitude and optimism, because when you stop and think about what you're grateful for, um, you know, you realize things are better than, <laughs> than you might have thought a minute ago when you were in a foul mood. So I, I'd love to hear, I feel like you've been writing a lot about this and um, talking, encouraging folks to express more gratitude or at least think about it in their own lives. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I, I do think that there's already a lot of good literature out there, and I'm not even somebody who's read all the gratitude books, but they're certainly out there. But I think, well, people who go through their days feeling gratitude, studies will show 
are A, both happier than if they don't, and even better, B, they make others happier. It's contagious. So I think this is really important. It's like optimism, frankly. I think, obviously, some people are not going to be catch the contagion of our optimism today, Bill. Some people just aren't wired that way, or they're in a place in their life that's that's hard. And this sounds too happy-go-lucky, and I totally can appreciate if somebody's reacting to, to Blue Sky uh, with me uh, that way this time. But I really want to make sure we, we dial it back out and look at the bigger picture um, you know, a readiness to show appreciation for and to return kindness, which is basically another way of thinking about gratitude, a readiness to show appreciation, to call it out rather than say, hey, who's not doing something right? Or what if things go bad? What if we instead say, hey, I just caught you doing something right? Uh, I just, what if things actually work? Those kinds of open-ended questions lead to openness creativity, usually better performance, and certainly, I think, contagion in a in a really good way. So yeah, I, I think gratitude, I don't even have a daily practice of gratitude. I think I think many, many probably do, and more of us should. I do think about these things. I actually do have a daily practice. Mine is that I have a list of virtues that I randomize from, and I just sit with that virtue from that morning into that evening. And as I fall asleep at night, I often think, all right, did I did I embody that or did I show it? I often make a point of trying to say that word once or twice during the day just to make sure I did. So this is a, a Ben Franklin orientation that I have, but um, gratitude is one of those those 36. But I'm not, you know, the capital G gratitude guy. It's just, I think it's really, it's a good and important thing. And I, Bill, I totally agree that it's linked to your topic, optimism. A quick plug here. While, of course, I want you to keep listening to episodes of this podcast and follow the Optimism Institute on social media, I also want to say there are lots of great things going on out there in this general space. And since David mentioned thinking about things going right, I'd like to put in a plug for the Progress Network and all the terrific things they are doing, including a podcast whose title is actually What Could Go Right? And now back to our conversation where I asked David Gardner about his relatively new project, The Motley Fool Foundation. The Motley Fool has done a good job reaching one third of America over our 30 years. We built a pretty good business by reaching you and me, those of us, a lot of our, us listening here who have capital and subscribe to Fool Services because they're like, well, what stock should I buy? What stock shouldn't I buy Donald Trump right. hotels and casino resorts? And, uh, and that's what we do. And I think we're, we're really good at that. We've proven that over time. And yet, that's only one third of America. And that's just our country, not the world. So we have amazing campfire stories at this point, right? When somebody takes a risk, clicks on keyword fool or buys our book back in the days of AOL, and then they're like, I'm not even an investor, but I'm, I'm going to buy Amazon with these guys. And they're still holding, right? We have, and we are, we have amazing customer testimonials relative to almost any company I can think of. I mean, I love Disney and I love Starbucks and Netflix, but in the end, these are wonderful consumer experiences. These are not financial freedom life improvers. So I think we're on the life improvement business in a really important way. Amazing testimonials, the campfire. And yet I think we need a lot more people around the campfire. And so 
Our effort with the Motley Fool Foundation is to look at the other two-thirds of America, which themselves are in two different buckets. Um, and this is not our thinking. This is out there, Financial Health Network. There's structures and studies around these things. The other two-thirds, one-third are the coping, paycheck to paycheck. You know, I'm just about, I, I'm just about out of my debt now, student debt. And, you know, if I could just save one extra dollar, I could finally become a net saver and an investor. So, or I'm a hardworking immigrant, but I'm still trying to figure out what's going on in this country. And I just, you know, they're coping. And that's one third of our fellow Americans. The, the final third are the financially vulnerable. Now, as the fool, when we look at those two thirds, we're like, which could we really help? And it's very clear to us, we can't really help the financially vulnerable. There are many services and beautiful efforts being made every day to serve those people. And yet there needs to be a lot more clearly because they're financially vulnerable. But for the coping, for the strivers, we think we can make them thrivers. Not all of them and not all of them at once, but in the same way we started The Fool 30 years ago as a, just a scrappy startup, an acorn. That's exactly in its first year what The Fool Foundation is. And now we're looking at the next third of America. And by the way, we remain a tiny, scrappy startup, like sure. Capital One, what it's doing <laughs> in this area, or financial literacy, or junior achievement. I mean, it's a gigantic world. We're not trying to be duplicative. We're trying to collaborate and partner with people who are already doing a good job in that space. But that's the Motley Fool Foundation. That's our playbook here in year one. We'll see what it's like in year two or five. Yep. But so far, so good. Terrific. Well, um, you and I agree on a lot of so things. How are the kids? Uh, no, I, we're getting there. You and I agree <laughs> on a lot of things, but I'm not into board games. And our, our listeners should know that you are you are like next level board game guy. And I don't know if this is going to tie to optimism or I just want to talk to you about it, but explain to me, what what is it about you and board games? Well, first of all, Bill, next time you're in Washington, D.C., please come visit. Let's play a game. You You are a gamer. You may not know it. I have PTSD of like eight hour monopoly and I'm the youngest in the family. Like they're cheating and they're not, you know, and it's just, ah, yeah, it's, it, uh, that happens to a lot of people. Yeah. Or they get called out on Scrabble, like how their family plays Scrabble or they had an uncle who tortured them over board games. Right. Exactly. This this is a lot of people's experience, unfortunately, but um, you should know that first of all, there are so many great cooperative games today. That was not even a thing growing up when you and I were, our kids' ages. Um, but in the last 20 years, the efflorescence of this entire industry has become really big and a ton of wonderful cooperative board games, including a very popular game called Pandemic, um, which ended up being even more popular for understandable reasons in the last few years, even though the design's about 12 or 15 years old and comes in many flavors today. Anyway, that's just one of hundreds and hundreds. And in fact, speaking of hundreds, uh, for video, which yeah, this is got? only, I think, for promotional purposes, you're taking video from <laughs> Bill. But I'm turning my computer monitor right now and just showing the rest oh of the room in which gosh. I am, where I have 631, and I know because I have it in a spreadsheet, board games arrayed in the shelves, A to Z around me. I am a crazy man. 631. Yeah, and, and I literally, this is embarrassing, I just called for the first time in 10 years because the games weren't on the shelves. They were all around me on the floor. I Good called Lord. 311 games inspired by Marie Kondo in the last two <laughs> months of last year. Joy. In the last two months of last year, I picked up 311 of my six, 942 games at that point. And I said, you know, you don't spark joy for me. And I don't have any room for you. And my wife's starting to get on me for this problem that I have. So I have actually jettisoned 311 games 
Uh, and a lot of them are good games, by the way. But anyway, I love games. And obviously, we could devote an entire optimistic podcast okay. to why games uh, next time. should be played by all. And in fact, are being played by, by all, even if you don't think of yourself as a gamer. There are lots of games going on in your life. But I would just say at the heart of it, this isn't about optimism. This is about me. One of the things I've learned is sometimes who you were as a kid says so much about who you still are as an adult or the things that you treasure. And I was basically the guy as Dungeons and Dragons was dreamt up and showed up as a little box in my yeah. store when I was, I think, 12 in our local toy store, Sullivan's here in Washington, D.C. I was like, that looks cool. And I read the rules. And then I was like, wow, there's some other games different from this, but kind of like this. And it's not just about Monopoly, a painfully bad game that many oh. people don't ever even finish. They just, right? And and you don't even have to like D&D or role-playing, and I don't really do that much of that anymore, but the genesis of a love of games, which was in me because my dad who went to Harvard with his older brother who went to Harvard, won the Harvard Bridge Cup, three years running, right? So, and I don't, I'm not even good at bridge, although I admire the card game, but I was basically raised in a gaming household by gamers and our kids were really raised as gamers because um, uh, we haven't even played 631 games. Like I have a lot still in shrink wrap, but man, my kids have played probably 400 different games. So it's, it's a really important part of our family culture, but I'm not here to say as a game evangelist, that everybody else needs to do that. But I am here to say there are so many good games today and the opportunity to share treasured time with friends and family over a gaming table, there are a few greater pleasures in this life for me. And I've been enjoying that for about 50 years now. Well, and it beats the heck out of doom scrolling. So, you know, I do agree with that. I mean, we don't need to be negative or go into that. Hands I down. mean, just celebrate games for what they are, but you're exactly. right. Exactly. I just, it, Monopoly didn't spark joy and I'm forever scarred. So I'll, I'll try to get back to it. <laughs> Can I give two really quick game recommendations before Please we finish? Please go, go. Yeah, because if we're going to talk games, I just want to make yeah, recommendations go. really quickly. So there is a wonderful, my game of the year for 2022 was So Clover. And the reason it was my game of the year is because it's so accessible and simple. And I'm not going to explain the rules, but it is a cooperative word game that is engaging. And I mean, so, for, for intellectual like Bill Burke, so clever. It's a, kind of a stupid pun on the phrase so clever, but it uses a motif of four leaf clovers. And okay. you're, you're putting little words up on each of the four leaves of the clover. And you're putting two word cards together. And you're needing to come up with a clue that unites oh. those random Ah, words I like that it. are next to each other. And then your friends are trying, without you being able to say anything, or try to guess and rearrange the words on your clover. Anyway, what you should know is it takes about five minutes to teach, uh, half an hour to play, and it works for every crowd. Young, old, kid, you know, families gathering at holidays, five minutes to teach the rules, lots of fun. It's just a great, great game. So for 2022, as a light game, that's my number one. And then for the few hardcore geeky gamers like me who are listening right now, I think Arc Nova was the game of the year for strategy gamers. An hour to learn, three hours to play, total opposite of So Clover. But that kind of latitude is what the gaming industry affords us today. Bill, you and I grew up with basically, you want to play Parcheesi, or yeah. you want to play Sorry, Sorry, or we can play Chess, or Backgammon, or Monopoly. Oh, and and there weren't stop. that many choices, and there was a lot of overlap. These days, there are so many choices. We're not even talking about video games and mobile games, which I can also talk too much about, but <laughs> let's keep moving. Thanks for indulging us in the deep dive into board games. And I don't know if any of this has anything to do with optimism, but I will say that when it comes to happiness generally, there is research that suggests that having hobbies 
can help lead to a happier life. And if the hobby is a fun one like board games, and as David suggests, you can include friends and family, then I'm all for it. And I suppose I'll have to work on my Monopoly PTSD and give this a shot. I think I'll start with So Clover and see how it goes. Now let's get back to our final few minutes with David Gardner, co-founder of The Motley Fool, and also, as you now know, one of the world's leading game evangelists. Okay, well, we're, we're coming to the end of our time, and I wanted to ask, I'm, I'm asking a lot of folks this question, sort of where where do you think that spark of optimism started with you? Where does it come from? I, there's, it's like a lot of things. Is it nature? Is it nurture? You know, are you born an optimist, like you're born a lefty or a righty? Um, how do you describe it? Because, you know, you and your brother founded this company together. You're raised in the same household. Where do you think your optimism comes from and how do you sustain it? Well, and there's so much overlap between Tom and me and we, we share so much and we share a, a lot of DNA. Uh, and I, I would say like my general layman's, again, I'm an English major, my humanities approach to science is in this context, it's always going to be 50% DNA and 50% behavior. Right. And so under that broad brush of my philosophy about the world, clearly there's DNA here. Both of my grandfathers were entrepreneurs and successful entrepreneurs. And we already talked about the link you started there between entrepreneurship and optimism. So clearly there's a lot of DNA in me. My dad, who was a very successful lawyer, uh, his one bit of advice to his kids was, you can't be a lawyer. That's the one thing I'm not going to let you be. <laughs> okay. And so he was even having fun with his own career. Wow. And yet he was pretty serious about it. And we could talk about that some other time. But anyway, um, so I think there's definitely, yeah, genomic reasons for why some people are optimists, some people are realists, and some people are pessimists. Uh, and it's our experience. And, and for me, I guess two things I would point to quickly. One is that I was talking about this on another podcast the other day. I found myself going back to this for some reason. But anyway, at the age of 10, I went to your fair state and spent sleepaway camp for two months in Raymond, Maine. Sure. At Camp Tamanis. You went to Tamanis? I know Tamanis. Yeah, our parents were shipping us out. I was 10. Tom was eight. We were there for the whole summer. I don't know why they did that to us. But at the end of that first year, at the age of 10, as a fifth grader, I won the most cheerful, the plaque. You can still visit Raymond, Maine. If you drop by Tomatoes sometime, Bill, you're going to see the 1976 plaque where at the age of 10, I was most cheerful. And so clearly, like this was in me. I was raised by parents who believed, not didn't believe, and who, who had lots of privilege and lots of reasons to think that the world is good. And you can, you can, you can have a great time in it. It's a playground and never silly. And we had all kinds of tragedy. And I, you know, how many bad stocks have I picked? Of course, all of the bad things are always included when I say this, but I, I would say if there are two quick things, one is that is just that I've always just been that way. That's just, I, I can't not be that way, I guess. But the other is my lived experience includes picking stocks like Amazon at at three dollars and twenty one cents in nineteen ninety seven, and then holding them, and or Tesla since two thousand eleven, or Netflix since two thousand four, or AOL back in the day, and I'm giving you some of my best investments, but I actually picked all of them and hold all of them. I also have a lot of other bad stocks, but here's the beauty of watching what happens: a, I learn the power of not just believing but acting through belief, and then I watch amazing things happen. It's very hard to 
make that up or fake it if you haven't actually lived through that. So I know what happens. I actually have lived it. So it's not just that optimism can exist on its own. I think that you have to actually put it into play, suffer misery, and but see what happens. And I've seen, especially investors, lower left to upper right, acorns becoming oaks. There's still a lot of time ahead in our lives, Bill Burke. You're just starting the Optimism Institute. I'm so excited about what you're doing. I mean, we've got, I hope, at least 30 more years going for awesome stuff to happen. And so, But I have seen over the first 30 years of The Motley Fool, incredible. Amazon's up a, like 500 times. Uh, Netflix is up 100 times. Like, And these are stocks we've recommended and hold. So once you have that experience and you know that that happens in the world and you understand why it does and how you can spread that and share that with others, how can you not be optimistic? So I, I think that's the behavioral part of it for me. I needed to be an investor and pick a lot of bad stocks, but also treasure the great ones. So that's the learning. Fantastic. Uh, I, I have to I have to share with you, uh, it just popped in my head because I was reminded of it the other day, another optimistic investor by the name of Warren Buffett uh, had a line, we're talking about nature and nurture. This is a joke, actually. He said, uh, I believe that we inherit longevity from our parents, so I don't bother to exercise, but I insist that my mother rides her bike 10 miles a day. <laughs> <laughs> I think that ties everything we just discussed together nicely. Great nicely. line. Well, Great so, line. David, this has been as much fun as I thought it would be. You're a remarkable guy, a real inspiration, and a true optimist in every sense of the word. And I, I can't thank you enough for joining us uh, on the Blue Sky Podcast. Well, from one to another, Bill, thank you. And I'm so excited about the Blue Sky Podcast and what you're doing. I hope in, in the years to come, we'll have an opportunity to talk and do more stuff together. And in the meantime, full on. Full on, David. Thanks so much. Now that you've listened to my conversation with David Gardner, I hope you can see why I've been a friend and fan of his since we met almost 24 years ago. And one of the reasons I like David so much popped up in that little story we shared at the beginning. Yes, I met with David and Tom Gardner in 1999 when they were looking to bring in a new CEO from the outside. And yes, back then I had a fancy job in cable television. And at the time I was being brought in as a candidate to take over their company as CEO. But no, I was not ruled out because they couldn't afford me. They passed because while we had a great time and lots of laughs together, I was not a guy who was going to help take their company to the next level. But all these years later, David didn't want to show me up on my own podcast, so he invented another reason. Once again, I am Bill Burke, founder of the Optimism Institute. And I thank you for listening to this episode of the Blue Sky Podcast and hope you'll join me for many more. And if you like this sort of content, please follow the Optimism Institute on social media.